Let's worship together this morning. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. 
sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior. How great thou art, how great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think that God his Son not sparing, sent him to die. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul. Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home when joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, how great thou art, how great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou Good morning, Cypress Bible Church. What a blessing it is to get to worship together this morning. We have finally made it to 2021, and I want to wish each of you a very happy and blessed new year. For those that are visiting, as well as those who call CBC their home church, you are welcome here. And what a great way to bring in the new year as we worship the Lord God together. We look forward to what 2021 will bring as we begin where we are and become more like Jesus. Before we begin our time of worship together, I just want to remind everyone that we will be starting up our seven-week church-wide alignment series next week, January the 10th. 
The focus of this series is becoming more like Jesus with lessons from the Gospel of Luke. Registration began on December the 10th, so if you haven't signed up or gotten your materials, please do so as soon as you can. We would love to have you be a part of this exciting journey together. Now, I want to ask that we come together to share our praise and thanksgiving to the Almighty God for all He is, all He does, and all He continues to do. Listen to the words of Psalm 113, verses 1 through 6, to help us focus our hearts on the one who is worthy of our praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. Friends, let's lift our voices to God Almighty and declare, Lord, how great thou art.
continue to worship this morning as we sing and we cry out, Hosanna in the highest.
Jesus, may you draw us to you until all we want and all we need and all our hopes and all our dreams are found in you and you alone. We're going to continue in worship reading scripture together from Romans chapter 12, and the words will be up on the screen. Please follow along with me. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another.
yet not I, but through Christ in me. Well, Happy New Year! It's good to see so many of you out on a cold January morning. And uh, we're going to continue our sermon series that we left off on before uh, Christmas on 1 Corinthians. And this brings us to chapter 8. And the title of today's sermon is Christian Liberty and What's to Eat. So probably a uh, appropriate title given that we've all spent the last week at Christmas and New Year's probably eating too much and everybody now is thinking about oh my I need to stop eating so much and I need to go on a diet so this is a very timely sermon I'm sure um, one of the things I'd like you to think about is everyone usually sets resolutions Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite theologians and he came up when he was 20 years old with 70 resolutions for the year of 1723. And for his life, he would go back to these resolutions. And look how they differ from resolutions that people serve today. He says, resolve to live with all my might. Now, that's something that a modern person might want to do, that we don't waste any time, that we give everything our all. But then he says, resolve... Whenever I do any evil action, to trace it all back till I come to the original cause, and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more, and to fight and to pray with all my might against the original of it. You can tell Edwards put his might into everything. And you can see here that the Puritans usually get a bad rap, but this is excellent, actually excellent psychology. And do you do that when you do something that you don't like? Do you try and trace it all the way back? And then he says, I'm resolved to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may grow in the knowledge of God. Now today in our Scriptures that we're going to look at, knowledge was a big thing for the people in Corinth. And knowledge is a big thing for us today. But knowledge has to be rightly focused, and it needs to have its source in God. But I wanted to just throw these resolutions out to you because I would say these are good resolutions. To be resolved to live with all of your might and all of your strength for, your, for, for the Lord and to be focused on his scriptures uh, throughout the new year. So anyhow, you can go to the website there, look at some of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, and maybe you might want to adopt a few for yourself this year. Now, let me ask you a question here before we jump into chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians to kind of set you up. When was the last time you were told you could not do something because others would object? Walk into the HEB without a mask on. So think about that, right? Now, I'm going to get to that maybe later. Um, let's take a look at the Scriptures. Here's the Word of God to us. And before I read it, let's just, would you pray with me? 
Dear Jesus, we just ask that you would be present to us, that you would speak to us deeply by the power of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would use your word here today to speak to us so that we would live lives that are pleasing to you and that the gospel would go forth from our church and that we would see lives radically changed for the gospel, both in our church and in our community and throughout our world this year. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now from the Word of God. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Let's just kind of unpack these first six verses, and then we're going to take a look at the 7 through 13, the last half of the chapter. He puts forward this assertion that love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. And I'm going to even say, his point is it actually tears down because he's getting this quote of knowledge puffs up from an Aesop's fable of the frog and the ox, and the frog encounters the ox, and the frog puffs himself up and does so multiple times that he finally explodes. And that is the way of knowledge. Knowledge unconnected to God always leads to arrogance. That's why I put the picture of Dresden, Germany, seven years after World War II. If you want to blame anything for the wars of the 20th century, it's arrogant knowledge that had separated itself from God. Europe turned its back on God. And that was the destruction that came. And think about your own life. When you just act out of your own knowledge and you don't pray about it, do you get into trouble? I can tell you I do. Um, And whenever I try and prove to others how much I know about a subject and I get into a debate, it always goes sour. And so Paul here, he wants to address this question of food, meat being sacrificed to idols, but what he's doing here first is he is attacking their epistemology. That's how they derive truth and how they answer questions. He's not going right into, well, hey, let's talk about the various types of cuts of beef that you're finding in the market. No. He's not even going back and saying, hey, let's talk about the second commandment and the third commandment that you're not supposed to have any idols before God. No, he is attacking the way they're addressing the issue. And he's saying, if you're going after this simply out of your own arrogant knowledge, you're going to arrive at the wrong conclusion every time and you're going to tear the church apart and you're going to tear relationships apart. So knowledge alone is arrogant. Here's from... Uh, Solomon, who was supposed to be, and well, not supposed to be, he was the smartest guy, wisest guy to ever live. He says this about knowledge. A person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, 
And then they must leave all that they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. So basically he's saying all the knowledge that you acquire is meaningless. So every kid right now in the audience should be saying to their parents, see, that's why I don't want to go to school. Okay, so let's continue this thought as Paul, through the lens of the gospel and the cross of Jesus in Galatians, and he's trying to communicate grace to the people of Galatians. Here's how he views knowledge. He says, formerly, you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Notice this theme of Paul as he says here, here's the real thing about knowledge. And he'll use the word knowledge ten times in this passage. Okay, in the Greek word there is gnosis. And so what he's saying is, it's not so important that you know things. It's that you are known by God. That God knows you. That he called you. He brought you into his family. He redeemed you. He created He knows you by name. He knows every hair on your head. That is real knowledge. So this is so see how he's reframing things here? And then he says this in verse three. He says, The one who loves God is known by God. And what he's setting forward here is not that we should, as Christians, make knowledge the basis of how we do church and do life, but love. Love is our rule for living. And I can tell you as a married man, it doesn't matter how many times I was right, but if I didn't love my wife, I was always wrong. And I'm sure I'm not the only person in a relationship who can confess that, right? You are always wrong in a relationship if you are not showing love to the other person. And so I love what Tolstoy says here. And he says that it's this law of love and it's recognition as a rule of conduct in our relations with friends, enemies, and offenders, which must inevitably bring about the complete transformation and existing order of things. And so I think that's the right way of looking at life. And I think that's what Paul is saying here is, let love be your rule for all decisions in the church, all decisions in the family. And Tolstoy here, and, and Paul would agree, let, it, let love rule in every decisions we make, public policy, whatever. So John said it this way, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, then God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us, for God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Okay, I'm saying it again. Paul's saying it again. John's saying it again. Love. Love. Love your brothers. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Love. That has to be the predominant overriding rule for your life. And if you are in Christ, you can do that. You know why? Because Christ died for you and he loves you. You know, John, Romans 5, 8, For God demonstrates his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. 
we just live out the love of God. We live out the gospel. We have to allow love to rule our hearts and our living. And I put this little quote here. Too often, you can see throughout the 2,000 years of church history, we've allowed lots of things to divide us in churches. And they're all based on knowledge. Oh, I know a better method for doing things. Oh, I know a better way to do music. Oh, I know a better theology. Your theology's wrong. I know how you're supposed to do communion. You don't do baptism right. Right? Love has not always ruled the church. And we can see it beginning back here in the Corinthian church. So, now he gets back to verse 4. Now, meet sacrifice to idols. Now, when you read 1 Corinthians 8, you probably skip over it. And in chapter 9 and 10 is kind of the same way because in your mind you're doing this sort of thing like, you know, I'm so glad I don't live in a pagan society anymore and everything I eat is being you know, offered to some you know, weird god, but I can just go to a restaurant and I can just eat my own meal and I can just say grace over it. And you know, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians doesn't really apply. Well, these are pictures from my favorite food temples. They're called restaurants. We got Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Um, and that's called a filet mignon, and it's the finest of all the cuts of, of the cow. And then down here, um, that's, that could be corkscrew barbecue, which is my favorite. We just went to Truth Barbecue in the Heights. Highly recommend them. And, then, and, and that's the best thing. Did you know about living in Texas is Texas barbecue? And then there's um, a Brazilian steakhouse. Now, when you go to Brazilian steakhouse, they'll give you a plate, and they want you to eat from their salad bar. No, no. Salad is to cleanse the palate. That goes last. Start with the meat. Okay, so, you know, I have no, no issues with, with, with beef. I just don't, okay? So maybe you do, but I don't. So, yeah, so this whole, you know, meat's being sacrificed to idols, I don't know anything about that, and neither do you. We're just going to leave that up there. So in that day and age, and, and the word that Paul's using here. I won't, I won't try and pronounce it because I won't pronounce it right, but they kind of debate what he's meaning. But he means both going to the market and finding meat there that's been sacrificed to idols and then also going to the temples. The temples was kind of like the banquet hall. So if you were going to have a fundraiser to raise you know, money for the United Way or for the American Heart Association, it would be done at a temple rather than a banquet hall. And that's partly what's going on here is that wherever you went and there was meat, it was probably being sacrificed to some god. And so you couldn't avoid the issue. It was everywhere. And so also at that time, uh, they thought, and people still to this day think this in certain parts of the world, is that what would happen is if your meat was sacrificed to an idol, then a demon would get into that meat or on that meat, and you would eat that meat, and then you were demon-possessed. And so they were very, very afraid of this. But Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out that defiles a person. And so you should never have that fear. That is not a, that is not a tangent. You are not going to get demon-possessed because you eat a piece of meat sacrificed to some fake or false god, which is how Paul puts it. But we are idols. That's the thing, is we may not have all these false gods, but... You are your worst idol. 
You always know what an idol is because it preoccupies your thoughts. And I'm willing to guess that you think about yourself more than any other topic in the universe. Ouch. So, when it comes to food, we may not have food sacrificed to idols, but we're just goofy about food. 30 million people in America suffer from some type of eating disorder. I used to serve as an advisor on um, a Christian ministry um, that was focused on Ednos by a woman who wrote a book called um, Life Within the Thin Cage. And Ednos is eating disorders not normally recognized. And so we've got so many diets out there. I particularly follow the seafood diet. I see food and I eat it. Or I like um, eating foods from Buddy the Elf's food groups, candy, candy corn, candy canes, and syrup. Right, so we all have issues with food, and to various levels and, and, and extent. Right? So I'm just trying to bring this home to us a little bit and get us to think about how we look at food. And here's the interesting thing. This whole idea of knowledge, gnosis, from about 150 A.D. to the fall of Rome in 425, the biggest false denomination in Christianity was known as the, was Gnosticism. And so you see this Gnostic idea that we know better than you and we'll tell you what to do emanating here in Corinth. And it's basically because the overly educated elitists of the day, they followed a Neoplatonic thought, and so they infused that into their Christianity. And it's beginning here in Augustine, around 400 A.D., he was dealing with them. And here's what he was saying. He was... With, he, he spent time with this group, the Manichees, who were Gnostics, and he says this about food. It's the best stuff I've written, I've read about how to deal with food. He says, recognize the need for nourishment and distinguish it from the demands of lust for eating. For that love of eating is to be controlled not by eating, but by restraint. So if, you've got, if you eat too much or you eat too little, you're too worried, too anxious over food, he's saying, think about food not as your idolatry is dominating because you have some sort of attachment to food, food that's not healthy. He's saying, just look at it as nourishment. It's nourishment. He then says, it is not the impurity of the food I fear, but that of uncontrolled desire. He's more concerned about himself and his own sinfulness towards the food rather than being so consumed about the food that we eat. And today, any discussions about food, it's all about the food. You know, are you having the right amount of calories, the right amount of proteins? How large is your portion? And he's saying, no, be more concerned about your own heart towards the food. And then he says, he says, apply the gospel then to your eating. The body of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross is that healing remedy who hung upon the tree, the medicine for our wounds who intercedes for us. Let me ask you a question. Do you pray over every meal? Because when you pray over your meal, you know what you're doing? You are sacrificing that food to the one true God. And you're saying, thank you, Lord, for providing me with this food. May I take it as nourishment for my body. And, 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 then, and then pray. Whatever sort of anxiety you might have about food, confess it there. And allow Christ to minister to you as you partake. Okay? 
this may help you exercise some, some demons and some idols as you think about your food this year. Pray before you eat. I'm going to skip that one. And Paul makes this great statement. He says, an idol is nothing. These are so-called gods. He completely destroys them. And any other religion outside of Christianity. And then he makes this um, statement here. We're not going to hear from Luther today. He makes this statement in verse 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom, we are, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Notice how he transitions from there are many fake gods to there's one real God. And notice what he's doing here as he is explaining who the Father is and he explains who Jesus is. The words are identical except for the preposition. Right? And it's from God all things come. From the Father. From the Father. But then with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's through whom. So the source of all things are the Father, but it is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who gives them to us. We see how the Father and Son work together. We also see here in this statement um, some, that, that Paul is pulling from other texts in the Bible. He's certainly going back to the Shema in, um, in Deuteronomy 6. But we also see that it is in Christ that we have our creation, our redemption, our purpose, our value, right? And we, we see here that he's, he's totally for you. Do you go through your every day realizing Christ is for me? Who can be against me? Boy, that really changes your attitude as you just kind of preach that gospel to yourself. And so this verse here, this creedal statement is the justification and, and the justification of the passage, meaning everything hinges on this. He's talking about their concern, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 7 through 13, he's going to apply it. But at the top of this passage, in the hinge point, is this creedal statement of who God the Father and who Christ is and who they are to us. And he's saying here that, that that's got to be the point for everything in life is you have to put God first. And you have to recognize that all things come from him and through him. So let's continue on with the passage. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, and we're no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, 
If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Now, Paul here is a master at rhetoric. Notice how he's talking about you know, the situation and all that. But how does he conclude this? He personalizes it. He says, look, if I see this going on, I'm, you know, I won't even eat meat. I won't go to Ruth Chris anymore because I don't want to stumble my brother because Christ died for him. I'm willing to limit my freedom. He actually concedes the point here that there's no problem eating meat in the um, marketplace or going to the temple and socializing with people um, there. He doesn't have really a problem with it, but what he's saying is love has to be restrained and we have to act in a manner of love, and he's personalizing it. And so anybody who's reading this is going to be like, uh, well, if the master is saying that he wouldn't eat meat and I'm less than the master, well, then I probably should think about my brother as well and maybe think about when I'm eating and what meat I'm eating. So you've got these two camps going on here in the Corinthian church, and guess what? These two camps have existed in the church of Jesus Christ ever since. You've got the legalists and you've got the libertines. Both have very strong arguments. You see, the legalists are saying, hey, look at what the commandment says. You're not supposed to have an idol. No idols, no false gods before the Lord. And if you're going out there and you're eating that meat that's been sacrificed to those idols, you're partaking in idolatry. Ah, good point. But then the libertine responds back. Remember Paul, Peter, who, you know, he had that vision, and he said, hey, I've never eaten anything impure. But then the voice of God spoke to him a second time because he wasn't listening the first time. He said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean, saying, you can eat anything you want. Right? And, and, and the, the libertines are saying, hey, you know, if we don't go out to the temples when they're having the fundraiser for the National Cancer Society, we can't evangelize people and tell them about Jesus. Because, we, you know, that's where they're serving the meats. We've got to be able to go and, you know, tell our friends in the community about Jesus. We have to be a witness. So you see the tension. And so the tension is real. So the question then becomes, who is the weaker brother? That guy. Okay. His conscience was weak, scarred by sin, idolatry, abuse. Um, he may be a little bit more of a sensitive type of individual, right? I mean, we're not talking about a Marine drill sergeant here, right, who, who you know, isn't going to be, like, real sensitive to what people think and feel about him. But the weaker brother um, might be more of a, a real feeling and empathetic-type person. And so he's maybe more socially conditioned by the morals and the beliefs of society, and he can't separate it. So, like, when I was in high school, we had to, we had to burn our ACDC back in black tape because Joe Aiello crashed it for his car, his cherry red Nova, four times, and every time he crashed his car, back in black was playing, and I think maybe like Hell's Bells was playing, and so we burned that tape, and he never had another accident. Now, I'm sure it has nothing to do with that he was a 16-year-old boy um, who was just a bad driver to begin with, but we blamed it all on that ACDC tape, and I, it took me 30 years to listen to Back in Black again. Okay? I had to like get rid of that because whenever I would hear certain rock music, I'm like back in my lifestyle before I accepted Christ at 17. So... 
So in some ways, we all have some weaknesses about the idolatry of our society. And so we have to be sympathetic, right? And so this is just a couple points, only nine points, on Christian liberty. Here's the thing. Because Christ has died for you, you are now free to live a godly life. You are now pleasing to the Father. You're able to perform the will of God. You're, you're able to obey His commands. Okay, you have this freedom in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom or liberty's sake that Christ died. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to another yoke of slavery. So the reason why Christ died for you is to give you this liberty and freedom to live for God and to God. So Paul then continues in explaining the situation here about the, the weaker brother. All right, here's a guy in the Army, a guy in the Navy. These guys never get along, but they have to get along in order to fight America's wars, right? And Paul says, be careful to exercise your freedom and do not become a stumbling block to the weak. What's really interesting here in verses 8 and 9 is he's basically saying that, that we all have standing before God, so therefore don't live in such a way with just over-freedom that you would trip your weaker brother and his standing before God and become a stumbling block to him. You don't want to trip the weaker brother in his standing before God. That's literally what Paul's saying here. And so he also says in Romans, he says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now, I can't tell you how many Christian friends I have who are vegetarians and how they tell me that when they're around their Christian friends who are not vegetarians, they get really negative and derogatory comments. And I'm just like, how can you be that way? I mean, the scripture's clear. If someone wants to eat vegetables, you need to accept them. Why do you look down on them? And so I just go out to the barbecue place without them. Um, so, stumbling blocks. What's a stumbling block? It's any activity that has a spiritual implication that can be viewed as sin by a fellow believer. It's almost always in the realm of pleasure and leisure. Almost always. But it always has a spiritual implication, and there are some biblical warrants that are tied to them. They can be, have damaging consequences for somebody's spiritual growth. They might infringe on somebody's liberty. And usually matters of pleasure require moderation and self-control that the weaker brother doesn't possess. Here's a few of them. Now, I did my best here. I'm sure there's more on this list. But we're talking about, now, today, it's like, if you go to an R-rated movie, like, no one even questions that. But remember back in the 80s and the 90s, if you went to an R-rated movie, if you were a Christian, people would kind of question your commitment are, are you with me? But, but today, with Netflix, it's just it's awful. Re remember, gambling actually used to be a sin, but now we have casinos everywhere. Um, dating, romance, limitations. Hey, you know, 
it's even in the church today that just anything sexually is permissible. It's, it's, it's quite common when you're dealing with single Christians today. Um, this may be a surprise to you, but lottery tickets were once considered sin. They're certainly a tax on the poor. Um, and so you see, all these issues have been issues that Christians, at least here in America over the last 200 years, have had issues with, with other Christians. Okay? So these, these are typically stumbling blocks. I mean, how many of you have gone to Christian camps where the girls had to wear one pieces, right? So let me just take one. I can't address all of them, okay? Alcohol is a pernicious one because it destroys families, it destroys life. Their problems are well-documented and indisputable, okay? And there's plenty of biblical warrant about alcohol, but it never says that alcohol is bad. Alcohol is actually a created thing. It occurs in nature, and, but it says, you know, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but he doesn't say don't drink wine. And then he tells Timothy, he says, hey, you know, you're too stressed out. Have a little wine with your stomach. You won't have so much gastric reflux. And then Jesus makes 120 gallons of wine to inaugurate his ministry. And the, 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 the head of the party says, this is really good wine, meaning it had a significant alcohol content. And then the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake of here in just a few minutes, is wine. Now, we've turned it into grape juice because Dr. Welch created it in 1869. Um, and we had a temperance movement and prohibition that really caused a lot of problems. Okay? So the point is, when it comes to alcohol, you need to either exhibit self-control, moderation, or if it's a problem, you need to avoid it. But there are people who have been alcoholics, alcohol abusers, and they need to just give it up. There's others who were raised in the family of an alcoholic, and they have nothing but nightmares and associate those nightmares with alcohol. And to them, alcohol is bad. And that would be the weaker brother whose conscience has been scarred by the abuse of alcohol. Alcohol is like fire. You all have fire in your home. It's called a furnace. It's called an oven. It's called a gas dryer. It's called a uh, you know, fire's everywhere, but we control it. And so typically with alcohol and all these types of issues, it requires moderation and control. Now, when Paul says here, if, if I eat meat and it causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat it again. The greatest preacher, he was called the Prince of Preachers, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he liked to smoke cigars back in the, in the 1800s, late 1800s. He was a preacher in London, and he was known for smoking his cigar. And the Christians then in, in England would give him a hard time about it. And he made this comment, What? For some is sin, others do to the glory of God. And the good Dr. Pentecost, who was complaining that this was a sin to smoke a cigar, notwithstanding, I intend to go home tonight and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. It's a kind of incense drifting up to heaven. <laughs> and, I mean, you couldn't argue with, 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 with Spurgeon. He was absolutely brilliant. He was a master of rhetoric and a master of the Scriptures. But then what happened was a poster similar to the one I have up here appeared in a smoke a cigar shop, and it said, whatever brand Spurgeon smoked, it said, smoke this brand. It's the cigars that, that Spurgeon smokes. 
Okay? And here's the thing. Spurgeon was one of the big celebrities in London in the late 20, in the late 19th century. And when he saw that sign, he went in there and he told the shop owner, tear down that sign and I will never smoke a cigar again because you are using this to hurt the weaker brother and to profit off of the servant of God and I will have nothing to do with it and I will never smoke a cigar again. And so I think that's really a great example of, of, of it. And remember what 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that just a few sermons ago. It says, you are the temple of God. You were bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's probably the best Bible verse on Christian living. So, quick summary right there. We're out of time. But let me give you a few things to think about. When you're engaging in these type of activities, test yourself. Consider the needs of others. Try and exhibit maturity and love in your behavior and with others. And ask yourself, are you willing to sacrifice for the benefit of somebody else? Remember, Jesus sacrificed all for you. Can't you sacrifice something that you might find pleasure in that harms or hurts another person for their benefit? So these are things to consider. Let us move to our time of communion and we just heard a passage of scripture on food being sacrificed to foreign gods and we're now going to come to the lord's supper which is bread and wine and we are dedicating food to the one true god and so this activity of the church is a perfection of what pagans did. We are offering food that we've been commanded to partake of, bread and wine, to remember the work of Christ at Calvary on our behalf, that he secures our salvation. And that's why we come to the table. Now, Paul will encourage us in chapter 11 that when we come to the Lord's table, that we should do so soberly. And we should do so examining ourselves. And so let's just take a moment here, and maybe you just want to take time and just praise God, thank God, but maybe you want to confess some sins to Him and ask Him to just cleanse your heart, purify your heart before you take of His supper. Let's just do that privately. Dear Jesus, we confess that we are sinners that have been saved by grace. And so we come to you humbly and come to your table, recognizing and realizing that this is a table of grace. That as we partake of this bread and of this juice, we are reminded that your body was broken for us, your blood was shed at Calvary to earn and, and, and to accomplish our salvation. And so we come humbly. We come celebrating you and your work on our behalf. And so we ask that we would be met with your grace here at your table, that you would fill us with your grace, that we would experience your goodness, and that we would know that we are known by God as we partake of these elements, and may we rejoice in that. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um,
we're going to all partake together. I'm going to ask you to peel off the top of your little cup and hold the wafer. And I want you to look at the wafer, and I'm going to read the words of institution, and then we'll partake together. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and we'd given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. I'll read the continuing words of institution, but let us tear open the cup together here. And when we all have the cup open together, we'll hear together the words. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you gather and drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink to the glory of Christ. Jesus shed for me. Whoa. 
As we depart, let me remind you that next Sunday we begin a new series um, called Becoming More Like Jesus, and all of our group ministries will be participating, going through this um, workbook uh, for seven weeks, and the book's been designed by a team here at our church, from our church staff. It's really well done. If you're not in a group, um, you can sign up for one out there, and you can grab one of these booklets as you depart. So as you depart, let me give you a good benediction here. Now may the God of peace that raised us from the dead, um, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh-huh.